Gracious Father, we are here to listen to you. We need to hear you. Your word is truth. It, is, it sets forth the reality for how we live our lives. It sets forth the reality that you are sovereign and you are king. And it sets forth the reality that we are upheld by Jesus. It sets forth the reality of the real Jesus, the real son of God who came and took human flesh for us and who lived for us in this world, who came and brought hope and life and peace to us who were estranged from you, who were your enemies. Spirit, we, uh, we are weak in our hearing. We are weak as we have anxieties which pull at us, other distractions which pull at us, other, other fleeting thoughts which may pull at us. And so we need to hear, though, from you. And so we ask that you would be at work in this time, that you, Spirit, would be going forth with the word to make it effective, to make it living. It is living and active, and it pierces us down to the very, uh, the very bottoms of our souls, to the, the deepest recesses of who we are. And so take this word then, plant it deep with us, within us, and grow it, allow it to grow, and allow our faith to blossom, and allow us to, to trust in Jesus more than we did before when we came in here, to see him as more believable and beautiful. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to look at this morning Mark chapter 14 verses 53 going into Mark chapter 15 of verse 15. We're coming to the end of our of our series on on Mark. We actually have just two more weeks after this after this sermon right here but we're going to look at Mark 14 uh, verse 53. This is God's word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. 
But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to him, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Amen. Judicial courts are expected to carry out justice. They're expected to do so in a balanced way. They're expected to do so fairly, uh, with an unbiased look of carefully examining the evidence. Hence the outcry that the public has when justice isn't done, when the guilty, the clearly guilty go free and the innocent are rendered guilty. Justice isn't merely the verdict, though, either. Justice is also with the punishment. A just trial doesn't happen when the courts view the defendant in a biased manner. And likewise, when the punishment that is then meted out doesn't actually fit the crime. And that's part part of the anger and frustration here at reading of Jesus' two trials. Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council comprised of the elders and the Pharisees and the scribes, all these religious leaders. He's brought before the Sanhedrin and he undergoes a trial in the night. A trial, though, where Jesus is brought in and the verdict is already rendered prior to him coming in and entering the courtroom there. They're just looking for a charge that they can put upon him. And not just any charge. They're looking for what would be a capital offense. What can we put upon him so that we can put him to death? And they bring in false witnesses bearing false and skewed testimonies. None of them really actually end up aligning to give any semblance of a fair trial. It finally ends here with the high priest just flat out asking him, Are you the Christ? And it's a loaded question. And he's anticipating an affirmative answer from Jesus. And when he gives that, then the the high priest yells, blasphemy. And he tears his cloak. 
the second trial then after this sin, he's, they, they take Jesus in the morning and they give him over to Pilate, the, the, Roman, the Roman prefect there, for trial. Because they'll be, the Romans will be able to carry out a death sentence. And Jewish courts couldn't carry out capital punishment, but Rome would. Rome was really good at it. And Rome wouldn't just sentence him for blasphemy. They would, though, for sedition, for treason. And that's what the charges are. They, they bring char- new charges, different charges against Jesus. They say that he is a rival king. But then Pilate looks at it all and he doesn't see a reason for guilt. But nonetheless, though, Pilate is swayed by the crowds who are calling out for his crucifixion. He does so because he's trying to avert a potential riot that would have been on his hands. Of this big uprising in, in this heightened uh, festive season anyways... He was trying to avert a potential riot, but also to keep his own power because a riot happening there in Jerusalem wouldn't make Caesar very happy. And history also says that Pilate wasn't, or Caesar wasn't very happy with Pilate anyways. And so he gives in to their whims and hands Jesus over to the executioners. Where is the justice in all this? There are so many things that are wrong in this trial. There are so many travesties of justice. And we could spend all morning here focusing on the details of it all here. But amid those details, though, is this important question. Why? Why was Jesus on trial in the first place? Why did all of this happen? Well, simply this. Jesus posed a threat to these religious leaders. Jesus was dangerous. And they didn't understand him from the very beginning. From the very beginning of his ministry, he was a danger to their religious expectations. He was a danger along with with their assumption of the status quo of how to live and what communion with God was like. But like the thing is, like most dangerous things, though, that we don't understand, they wanted to destroy him. They only saw the sharp edges without seeing the importance of them. They only saw the danger of Jesus without seeing the goodness. But sometimes it's seeing the dangerous element that actually makes it good. Like, for instance, if I said, why don't I would like you to climb into an aluminum tube and sit down so that you can be propelled at 500 miles an hour at 30,000 feet in the air, you'd say, that's kind of crazy. That sounds dangerous, doesn't it? But if I say, though, oh, but that will allow you to get from Portland to New York in five hours flat, well, that's actually what makes it good. But without seeing the goodness, then we we misunderstand it. We want nothing to do with it because we only see the danger, and we even want to get rid of it, too. But often it's the fearful and dangerous element isn't just only what makes it good, it's also what makes it beautiful as well. Right? There's an inherent danger that comes with standing at the edge of a cliff. When you're looking out at the beautiful view and you're looking down at the, the sweeping vistas and, and, and you, you can see the, the valley and the canyon below you, there's an exhilaration to that. But part of the exhilaration and part of the, the beauty is because you also know of the fearfulness. Right? That dangerous element that you're one step from the edge is also part of the beauty, though, because you're that close there. And that is what allows you to see that big, breathtaking view. It reminds us here of the words of Mr. Beaver in uh, The Lion, the, Wit, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when talking about Aslan. Is, is, is he safe? And he says, of course. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. 
But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe. Jesus is dangerous. Because God is dangerous. God is terrible in his being and his character. Now, terrible doesn't, mean necess- doesn't necessarily mean negative, right? Terrible in that it is so thoroughly overwhelming. He is terrible in his holiness, in his justice. He is terrible in his mercy and love. It is so overwhelming. He is dangerous, though, also to our views of God. When Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that is a challenge. That's a challenge to those who might say there is some other way. Jesus is dangerous to kingdoms. Kingdoms of the world are accountable to him. Jesus is dangerous to religious sensibilities. That's what the incarnation is. That he actually had to step in to our created space here. That he actually had to come in and he showed us grace. Incredible grace by even going to a cross. Which shows how, he is, how dangerous to sin he is. That he tells us to repent. That he died to show us for what it is. And that he kills it then by his work on the cross and by his spirit. But his danger and his unsafeness is good. It's, he came wrapped in human flesh as the eternal son of God and that is good. He is a God, he is a savior who is a danger to our natural inclinations and ourselves. Right? He, is, he challenges our views of him. He challenges our own kingdoms that we want to take comfort in. He challenges our self-centered views of God. He challenges our religious sensibilities. He challenges the sin that we also take comfort in and we indulge in. Jesus isn't safe at all there. Because encountering Jesus, though, means being exposed. But here's the thing. Being, encountering Jesus and being exposed means actually seeing what is better in him. It means seeing his beauty. That's why Jesus stood on trial here, hated by the courts. Jesus stood on trial to redeem. And as he stood on trial, he stood, what are going to be our four points this morning, he stood silent. He stood sovereign. He stood subversive. And he stood sinless. You like that alliteration? We got the four S. I don't do that very often. But silent, sovereign, subversive and sinless. First is he stood silent. What is it that stands out in the trial here? It's Jesus' silence. He doesn't respond to any of the accusations or any of the false testimonies against him. The The only responses that he gives are the two direct questions that are regarding his kingship. In chapter 14, 62, by the high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And then in chapter 15, verse 2, by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Those are the only two times that he doesn't stay silent. Now, what would you normally expect in in a trial like this? Defensiveness, right? Defensiveness that we all feel as human beings, as fallen human beings, as we engage in when we have accusations brought against us. It's a defensiveness that wants to vindicate ourselves. Words. That come from a heart that feels the need to defend ourselves. Especially to defend ourselves amid baseless accusations. And yet Jesus, though, here, faces them with dignity. He faces them with silence. Even amid slander. Why does he do that? More importantly, how does he do that? He does that for, 
He does it first because he knew that his father is the ultimate judge. He knew that his father was the judge who sees all things rightly. That even amid accusations, even amid baseless accusations, he could entrust himself to the father, knowing that his father has perfect justice. If you look through the Psalms, you will find all sorts of Psalms there that express hope in God's vindication amid times of accusation and amid times of slander and enemies rising up. Well, Jesus prayed those. Jesus prayed them his whole life. Jesus prayed them in these times too. Jesus didn't need to defend himself. His ministry said enough. And he was confident in the perfect justice that would be rendered by the Father. Not the justice of the legal system. But second though too, is because his rejection was necessary. He stood silent because his rejection was necessary. We heard from Isaiah 53 this morning, right? That he was oppressed, afflicted, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus was assenting to a redemptive plan. The redemptive plan that we see in Isaiah 53 about the servant who would come and who would suffer for the sake and in place of sinners, who would take their sin upon himself, who would be crushed for our iniquities, but who would be raised up then for justification. Jesus was, as he stood silent there, was assenting to a redemptive plan, the redemptive plan of God that required him to suffer. It showed his willingness his love, and an ascent that showed his willingness to be led away to suffering, to mockery, and to death. Jesus stood silent, but second, Jesus stood sovereign. He also stood sovereign. He had a silence against the accusations, and the only questions that he, that he answered were related to his kingship, to being the Messiah, to his identity. Right? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Most Blessed? It's a question more than just simply about messiahship, about the, the one who they were coming, or who they were waiting, who they were long anticipating to, to come and to redeem them. He says, son of the most blessed. That was a euphemism for the Lord God. They were very careful here. And this, and this, uh, this, uh, th- this high priest was very careful to, to not use the name of the Lord in a flippant manner. And so son of the most blessed was, was a euphemism for basically, are you the Christ, the son of God? It is direct questioning here related to the implicit claims that Jesus had given his whole ministry. It was from all of what they saw, all of what they heard. They're just asking, tell us. Just straight up tell us now. And Jesus gives them an answer that they understood. It's clearly claiming divinity. Because they denounce him afterwards then for blasphemy. They tear the robes, which was a sign of blasphemy of what they would do here. And Jesus doesn't just answer with a yes. He answers with scripture. And he puts two passages together, two significant passages together in his answer in, re- in reference to himself. And the first is Psalm 110, verse 1. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it talks about the Messiah, about the, the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Right? It's the Messiah sitting, this, the Christ sitting at the right hand of God with his authority. Because who is it that gets to sit at the right hand of God? It's, it's someone who has the authority and the status of God himself, right? But then he also talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds there as well. 
And if you've, if you've been with us for a while here as we've been going through Mark, you've heard this title, Son of Man, and you've, we've gone back again thinking about when Jesus talks about him being the Son of Man. It's from, from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. One like the Son of Man coming, in, uh, coming and being presented before God, the Ancient of Days, given a kingdom, uh, given power, right? given authority, given an eternal kingdom that will never fail. And here he is then talking about he is the Son of Man, being given power, being given authority, coming in the glory clouds of the Lord. When he talks about coming with the, coming, um, uh, with the, uh, the clouds of heaven, that's not just the clouds of the sky. That is referencing the, glory, the clouds of the, the brilliant glory of God that filled the temple, that, was, that, surrounds, the God, that surrounds God on his throne. And so you, they had outrage. They say, blasphemy. But it would only be blasphemy if he spoke wrongly. These are the titles that Jesus takes into himself. These are the, the titles here that scripture of scripture witness that he affirms about himself. That he is coming in the glory cloud of God. But that this isn't only referring to his return. This is who he is right now. That this, this is him seated with God in that glory. Because Jesus would be declared the son of glory and resurrection. And he would be a throne in glory in the ascension where he is right now. And then before Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? He gives the affirmative answer. You said so. But there's a disconnect there. He's saying there's not a, it's not a kingdom as you understand it. I'm not a king quite as you understand it. I'm actually king over the world. I'm king over this heavenly kingdom. See, in these answers here that Jesus gives, he is claiming a transcendent kingship. He could have remained silent because he would someday preside over them as judge. He could have just sat and been silent. But it's standing, though, with Jesus, though, means having him acting as your judge. No matter who, no matter the accusations that they are against you. Accusations don't stick unless Jesus, the judge, says that they do. His blood shed for his people pleads innocence. And judges of the world are accountable to Jesus as the judge over the world. In Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, Psalm 2, the, 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 the one, the, the Messiah, the one who sits on, 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 on the throne put there by, by God, it says, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It's the sovereignty of Jesus here is what led them to kill him. Have you taken into account his sovereignty? Have you thought and taken into account the sovereign, this sovereign nature of Jesus as king? See, sovereignty isn't just over kings and rulers and nations of the world. Sovereignty also means you as well. It's also over you. And that's part of Jesus' danger. Jesus is dangerous to our self-centered kingdoms. He's dangerous to our whims, to how we may want to run our lives. But the thing is, his danger, though, is also his goodness. Because he shows us a better master to follow after. A better, a better master, the only rightful master over our lives. And a self-giving master, the one who, has, who entrusted himself to the care of the Father. The one whom we can entrust ourselves to. But the third 
point here as Jesus stood. Jesus stood subversive. Subversive. Jesus is a king over a transcendent kingdom. A kingdom which doesn't, rel- just, doesn't just remain in some other plane of existence. It's a kingdom which breaks into the world and it turns it upside down. It infiltrates the kingdom of this age and it grows. And Pilate recognized Jesus as having done nothing wrong here, right? I see no wrong in this man. What's he done? But he's nervous of the crowd. And so he offers this third way. And there's a tradition that they had at certain festivals to let a prisoner go free. He says, who do we have down there? Well, there was an insurrection not long before. Okay, so we have Jesus. We can give you Jesus or you can take this other guy who was in the, the insurrection, Barabbas. You can have Jesus, the man who says that he's king, or you can have Barabbas, an insurrectionist who's guilty of murder. Romans didn't take insurrection very lightly. And so that should have been an easy decision in theory because releasing an insurrectionist, well, insurrection, if you had insurrection rising up, it was almost a free pass for the Romans to come in and to destroy your city. It was an easy decision in theory, but he forgot that he was dealing with a bloodthirsty crowd. Who are you going to choose? Well, they chose Barabbas. They chose an insurrectionist. They chose a political radical. But they also, though, condemned the more radical individual. It wasn't Barabbas the insurrectionist. The king of a kingdom which is breaking into the world. And a kingdom that turns the world upside down. A kingdom which turns the world upside down in ways far deeper than any human insurrection could ever go. And Jesus' silence shows that. A kingdom not coming through violence, but rather through violence that was done to him. His own willing sacrifice. Overturning more than empires and social orders. This is overturning the world with change at the most fundamental depths of the created order. The earliest days of the church, the visible kingdom of God, the earliest days of the church there was shown in, is shown in the book of Acts to be turning the world and its systems upside down. In Acts 17, you have the Jewish authorities that were for, they formed a mob against Paul and the church. And in verse 6, they, they refer to them as the men who have been turning the world upside down. Just a couple chapters later in Acts 19, you have these new converts in the city of Ephesus. And they've repented and they've turned from their magical arts. And they, they take their books and they burn them in the city center there. And not just some books, but this is uh, the number of books there was, the vet was valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. That is not an insignificant amount of money. And it disrupted then an entire economy by halting the crafts trade, which thrived from, from creating silver idols and shrines. It was, it's a disruptive, subversive kingdom. But it wasn't the apostles or the disciples in the church that were doing it. It was Christ, though, who was at work. Christ, by his spirit, who's empowering his disciples, empowering the church to go and to live forth as, as, as witnesses to this kingdom. See, as the kingdom goes forward, things change. Economies change. Values change. Lives are changed. And as things change, people get upset. 
part of the subversion is the suffering that occurred simultaneously in those, in those passages. Beatings, arrests that happened. See, it wasn't triumphalistic as it went forth, but it went forth through trial. Jesus upturns the patterns of the world upside down. As Christ, as the king of the Jews, his kingdom enters in and it turns the world upside down. But his kingdom, though, doesn't come in by insurrection. His kingdom doesn't come by revolution or overturning the world through movements. It comes not by in through insurrection. It comes in, though, by resurrection. It comes in by new life. Resurrection, which has changed everything about the world. It has turned upside down curse. It has turned upside down death. It has turned upside down suffering and has now brought forth life. New creation now springs into the void of the dead world. New life bursts forth in the people who once only had darkness. Newly alive people now who are the seedlings of resurrection are sprouting into the world, displaying the glory of life in Jesus and displaying the glory of his kingdom. Resurrection is seen as people in this kingdom serve and work and worship in this decaying world in which we live. Do you believe in this world-upturning power of Christ and of his gospel? Do you believe that this gospel, that this kingdom is, 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 and this resurrection power takes root, not just across the world, but in places like in which we live? That this resurrection power takes root in a place like Newburgh? And that it can have real effects in real lives as people bear witness to this kingdom right here. But the bigger question, though, maybe for us to ask is, do you believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? Because if so, then this kingdom power is alive and well among us then. Because Jesus is raised, we of all people have, have the most reason for hope. Jesus is raised. That gives hope for places here like Newburgh, for the people who live in Newburgh, for ordinary people. It gives hope for broken people. It gives hope for people who are in circumstances of all kinds, right? This is what it means that for resurrection life to grow here. The kingdom of God is subversive. It overturns the world as we see it into life, but it's also, though, subversive by grace. And that's one of the most radical ways that the kingdom is seen. Jesus shows incredible grace to Peter. Because all the while during the trial, where was Peter? Peter was outside. Peter was warming himself around the fire with Jesus' enemies. Jesus, or, uh, Peter was out there invoking curses upon himself and upon others because he had been seen as a disciple of Jesus. Three times... There, Peter denies Jesus. Three times he fails him deeply. And yet, though, in all of this, there is Jesus' desire to show him grace and restoration. I hate to, uh, hate to spoil how the story ends. Jesus is raised from the dead. But in chapter 16, verse 7, at the resurrection, when they're there, when, the, when, when Mary is at the tomb and she's talking to the angel. The angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. The angel singles out Peter. Doesn't just say, tell the disciples. Singles out Peter. 
there's something gracious. There's restoration that's there even for Peter. Grace doesn't come natural to us, does it? That's part of the scandal of grace. Grace is foreign to a graceless world. And grace is even hated at times. Consider how little grace is shown in public when someone does something publicly wrong. But, uh, no, not when someone does something publicly wrong. But when someone, though, made a poor decision years prior in their life. And they're ashamed of that. And it gets dug up and then they are forever labeled. They're forever banished. They're forever canceled because there's no grace. There's no forgiveness. There is nothing in the, in, in the world's eyes that can atone for them. Now, grace doesn't just wink, wave its hand and say it's all okay. Grace, though, acknowledges the depths of those wrongs. People who know grace, though, for our own propensity for failures, show grace. Forgiveness and grace is radical. And so are people who show grace because they themselves know grace. Because the kingdom is founded upon grace. It is grace. The kingdom of God is founded upon grace. It was grace that didn't overlook our sins. But it is grace, though, that has dealt with our sins. And that's not a cheap grace, though. Jesus' grace involved him dying for Peter's sin in that moment. See, the grace, though, of the kingdom also subverts us. The grace of the kingdom humbles us. It refashions us for God's use. Grace humbles us, doesn't it? Peter required this humbling to turn him into who he was someday. To be the apostle that he would be. He was a broken man here, though, who would be coming to grips with his own nature as a failure before Jesus, but though that we would see them later as being a man who was restored. But a man who was restored is also a humbled man. See, we go forth, though, as, as, as humbled servants of a condemned king. But we go forth as humbled servants of a, of a condemned king who knows resurrection life. Right? There are pe- these are the people who Jesus uses for his kingdom. This is the power of Christ in weak and broken people. Friends, let's embrace the subversive character of Jesus and his kingdom. We shouldn't be trying to lessen this at all. We shouldn't be trying to remake it. But this, though, is a kingdom which goes against the patterns of this world. It's a kingdom that goes against the patterns of our lives. Honoring Jesus is to embrace the otherworldly aspect of this kingdom, right? It's otherworldly. It's not a kingdom in synthesis with the world. It is otherworldly and it turns it upside down and it replaces it. It is a gracious kingdom where we we find grace and mercy before God and we are empowered then to go work and serve for the kingdom empowered by the grace that that we've been shown. All because of resurrection. We are going forth and embracing resurrection and showing resurrection to a world, to Newburgh, to our neighbors, to our friends, to in our workplaces, we're showing what resurrection life looks like. And fourth, Jesus stood sinless. Jesus stood sinless. The sinless, innocent Jesus stood condemned so that the condemned might be declared sinless and innocent. See, this here is where the silence and the sovereignty and the subversiveness of Jesus meet. He was silent as he stood willingly condemned. Willing. 
in the place of condemned sinners. His crucifixion and his death, him facing the wrath, uh, wrath and God's condemnation for the sins of his people. He went like a sheep silently to the slaughter. As the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. His silence shows his willingness to stand in the place of those who are rightly under, con- under condemnation. No argument here. He gave himself up. He is also sovereign, though, as he stood condemned. There's nothing out of his control. He had a willingness to the nth degree when we consider his sovereignty. It comes with knowing his entrance into into, glory and power. He knew what was in store for him. He he knew the vindication that uh, that was in store for him. And the values of the kingdom in which we live are formed by the king. Self servitude, self sacrifice, love, humility, despite position. This is Jesus standing sinless before the, the, the tri- in, in it, before the court there. It shows us all of these things. The subversive nature of his standing condemned. It was an act of his grace. It was grace for the guilty. Grace for those who offended him. It's a grace that, reor- that changes us. That, a grace that reorients us. His sinless sacrifice for our sake. It shows how helpless we are. And the more though that we look to him condemned and crucified, the more his grace is extolled and the more our hearts are changed. Jesus underwent an unjust trial and he faced an impartial court. Why? Because he was dangerous. He was a threat to the powers of this fallen world in this present age. And he continues to be dangerous as he confronts people still today. But he's life. He's life to everyone who knows him. He stood on trial, unjustly condemned, to rescue and to give life to sinners in darkness without hope. The sinless Lamb of God went silently before his accusers, standing in the place of those condemned, to die in their place and to give them the resurrection life of his kingdom, which conquers the world. Let's pray. Lord God, amid all of the the travesty that was happening on that night and that morning, you were sovereign. You accomplished good which came from this evil, wicked act. You have given us life now. There is a goodness of life, new life, not as known by, by the world, but life that transcends this world. Life that empowers us to live graciously in this world. Resurrection life as we live and serve in this world. Give us a confidence in that. Give us a confidence in the resurrection life of Jesus. And knowing that he is the one who stood sinless and condemned for our sake. Conform our persons, conform our wills to that of Jesus That he stood condemned, he stood willingly, trusting in you, Father. And as we are united in him, empower us to be able to do so as well. Lord, prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table. Drink of the, the cup and eat of the bread very shortly. In Jesus' name, amen.